The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. John chapter number 18 is where we're going to be at this morning. John chapter number 18. Thanks so much for being here for our second service this morning. Uh, Every year around Christmas time, I see the same joke that kind of floats around uh, on the internet and social media, and I always kind of get a chuckle at it. It's the four stages of Santa Claus. Uh, The first stage is you believe in Santa Claus. And to be honest, that's probably where my kids should be at, except for we don't really do Santa Claus in our house. Uh, Not because we're like anti-Santa or anything, uh, but really maybe we're selfish. We just want to get full credit for the gifts that we're giving to our kids. And so, no, your mom and dad got you those, not some old fat guy in a red suit. Uh, The second stage is you don't believe in Santa Claus anymore. You know, you're too old for that. You know he's not real. You know it's your mom and dad. So you're too old. The third stage is you are Santa Claus, and that's the stage my wife and I are in right now. Christmas used to be all this excitement and getting gifts, and now you're just broke because you're buying all the gifts, and you are Santa Claus. And then the fourth stage is you start to look like Santa Claus, and some of us might be creeping into that stage there. Uh, The truth is, uh, both of our our two oldest kids, our boys, uh, they're getting old enough now to where they really understand Christmas, and they're excited about it. There's a lot of anticipation. My oldest son all year long. It didn't matter. Uh, we, it could be the middle of the summer, 115 degrees outside. We're doing something in the garage, and he sees the Christmas decorations up on the shelf. He's like, Daddy, can we set up Christmas? And I'm like, no, it's 115 degrees outside. We're not putting up the Christmas tree right now. Uh, my youngest boy, our second oldest son, Michael, uh, after we set up the Christmas tree one morning, uh, it was early in the morning, I was carrying him downstairs because he had just woken up, and our living room, all the lights were off except for the lights on the Christmas tree. And it looked really cool. It's a really neat scene that we were kind of walking down to. And he looked at it as I was carrying him. And just with the most innocent and pure expression goes, wow, just loved it. And it's so fun to be around them as they are kind of experiencing Christmas for the first time in this genuine sense of awe and wonder that our kids have. And we took them to Candy Cane Lane the other day and they absolutely loved looking at the Christmas lights. And it's really kind of contagious because their excitement and their sense of awe and wonder is so pure And it's so genuine. As you consider the disciples and the followers of Jesus, though, they probably would have had a similar sense about Christ as they're following Jesus now. He's been in his ministry for three years. They've seen him do a lot of amazing things. There was definitely the sense of wonder and anticipation. I mean, this was the Messiah. He had been prophesied about for hundreds of years. So they had been anticipating his coming, and now he was here. Uh, Last week, we saw how he came in the most counterintuitive way, and people were definitely wondering about it. Several times in Scripture, we see Mary, she'll see something take place with her son, and the Bible tells us he just ponders these things in our hearts. So there was anticipation. There was wonder. There was no doubt, certainly amazement at the miracles he performed. I mean, think about it. He fed thousands of people. He healed people who had incurable diseases. The blind could see. The lame could walk. Jesus even raised people from the dead. It's no wonder he had such a huge following. And as they followed his ministry, sure, there were some aspects about Jesus that they didn't understand or maybe they didn't expect. But if he could do these miracles, surely he was the Messiah. I mean, think about Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus at nighttime so nobody knows. And he says, Jesus, look, we know you're from God because nobody could do these miracles. There was this sense of wonder about who he was. There was this amazement. There was a little bit of mystery. And it was really this amazing thing. And certainly this was the king. Certainly this was the Messiah. And you can imagine the sense of wonder and anticipation would have grown and grown and grown as Jesus' ministry continued. I mean, he's the king, right? This is our long-awaited Messiah. Uh, When is Jesus going to set up his reign? When is Jesus, when are we going to get to overthrow Rome? When are we going to set up the kingdom here on this earth? And I'm sure the anticipation was just building and building in the disciples' hearts, and they were so looking forward. They had seen so many miracles. They had seen Jesus, how he handled the Pharisees. They had seen him raise the dead, and there's all this wonder and anticipation 
And then the unthinkable happens. Instead of rising to power, Jesus is arrested and sentenced to death. And over the course of a few hours, the wonder is lost. The anticipation is gone. And for those of us who've lived a little bit, we can, we can relate to that. I mean, we've, we've had our hopes stifled enough times to maybe have a little bit of cynicism kind of start to creep into our hearts. Sure, we're not the grumpy old guy down the street, but we know better than to get our hopes up too high, right? Because we've been let down before. Uh, we've had things that we've worked for not come through. We've been left hanging. We've all had prayers that didn't get answered the way we wanted. And so maybe we're not overly cynical and upset all the time, but there's definitely this sense of, uh, we've lost that sense of wonder at the marvelous gifts that God has given to us. Imagine these disciples. They left everything to follow Jesus, and now he's arrested. He's been beaten. He's been sentenced to death. I mean, they thought, this is it. It's all over. They must have been feeling like they had lost everything. I mean, feeling like we just wasted, what did we do this last three and a half years of our life? Everything that we've worked for, everything that we sacrificed for, everything that we've believed in, and we've, we've put, all, we put all the chips on the table, so to speak. We've got nothing left, and now it's all over. Perhaps you've been there in your life. You've worked, and you've sacrificed, and you've put your hopes and dreams out on the line, only to see it all come crashing down. But what we're going to see throughout this morning's study is that what seemed like the end, and for the disciples, it seemed like the end, and maybe you're here this morning, and you feel like you're just at the end of your rope, and you don't know what to do next, and you feel like you're at the end. What seemed like the end was really just the beginning. You see, we as humans, we tend to view things from a perspective of what we can see down here on earth. We allow uh, the things that we can immediately see with our eyes and our immediate circumstances to be the biggest influencers in our life, and the people in our story, this Christmas story that we've been looking at, they were doing the same thing. The followers of Jesus, they saw Jesus getting arrested and they thought, this is it, we're done for. They're now fleeing for their lives. Hope is gone and lost. Even the enemies of Jesus were doing the same thing. They thought they were rejoicing because they thought we had finally silenced him. We finally won. The only problem was the enemies of Jesus, the Sanhedrin, didn't have the authority to execute him. So after they go through their own mock trial, they send him off to Pilate, who now proceeds in his own line of questioning. He's starting to interrogate Jesus himself, and this is where we're going to pick up in our story this morning. Turn to John chapter number 18. If you are physically able, I'd like to invite you to stand as we read God's Word this morning. Uh, we're in our third week of our series called The Story of Christmas. We're looking at the big grand story of Jesus. That is why he came, and so each week we're looking at a different part or a different act of the story. The first week we saw Act 1. We saw the prophecy of Jesus. We saw how for hundreds of years he was prophesied and people were expecting him. Last week we saw Act 2. We saw his birth how he came into this world. And this week, we're going to look at Act 3, the crucifixion and resurrection. On your way in, you should receive a service program guide. There's an outline that you can use to follow along as we study. Let's read John chapter number 18. We're going to read verses 33 through verse number 38. The Bible says, Then Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus. So Pilate, he's doing his own line of interrogating. He's going back and forth between Jesus and this mob of Jews that want to see him killed. And so Pilate, he enters again, and he calls Jesus, and he says unto him, Are you the king of the Jews? Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered and said unto him, Sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee of me? Jesus said, Hey, do you want to know, or is this just what somebody else has told you? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? It's thine own nation and chief priests that have delivered thee unto me. What, what, what hast thou done? What, 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 Jesus, what are you doing? <laughs> they, they, your own people have turned you over to me. What did you do? 
What did you do? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from hence. So Jesus is saying, look, my, my, my kingdom is not from around here. My kingdom is not a kingdom of this earth like you're thinking about like what they're thinking about. That's not what my kingdom is about. Pilate, he gets confused, and he's kind of befuddled. He's like, so you're a king, but you don't have a kingdom. Pilate therefore said unto him, are you really a king? Are thou really a king then? Jesus, you're not making any sense. You're confusing me. These people want to kill you. Your life is in my hands, and you're being really confusing. You're saying you're a king. They're saying you're a king, but now you're saying you don't have a kingdom. Art thou a king then? Jesus answered, thou sayest I'm a king. To this end was I born. For this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth, the truth that Jesus is the King. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. Those that understand, those that believe, those that put their faith and trust in this truth, they hear Jesus' voice. They are his followers. They believe in him. Pilate saith that to him, what is truth? Let's pray, and then we're going to jump into our first thought this morning. Father, we love you so much, and we thank you for the truth that you are king. We thank you for the amazing gift that you gave us in the crucifixion and resurrection. And I pray this morning, no matter where we find ourselves, Lord, I'm sure many of us feel like we've lost so much in our lives and many of us are hurting and maybe we feel like we're at the end of our rope. But Lord, I pray that as we look at your crucifixion and resurrection, we would realize that what seems like the end may very well just be the beginning. We ask this in your name. Amen. You may be seated. So in these verses we just read, we're going to get our first thought this morning, and that is very simply the nature of Christ's kingdom. The nature of Christ's kingdom. Like we said in our introduction, we tend to allow our immediate circumstances or what we can see with our eyes to be the biggest influencers in our life. And that's what Pilate is struggling with here in our story. He's, he's asking Jesus, are you the king? They're telling me you're the king. Jesus said, this is why I was born. And Pilate's like, what? <laughs> you're saying you don't have a kingdom, but you're a king. This makes no sense. And so as Pilate is interrogating him, Jesus actually begins to correct this type of thinking that looks only at earthly circumstances. He's saying by telling, he tells Pilate what his kingdom and mission actually is. You see, Christ's kingdom was not one that was going to be set up like other kingdoms on this earth. That's why Pilate was so confused. That's why the Jews were so angry. See, Christ's kingdom rests on principles of eternal truth. The aim and goal of Christ's dominion of his kingdom is not earthly glory. It wasn't conquest. It wasn't power. Like Rome, they were all about power. The Jews, they were all about power. That wasn't what his kingdom was about. It was about the advancement of spiritual ends. And it must have been surprising to those who heard and followed Jesus to hear him claim, I'm the Messiah. I'm the king. I'm the one you've been waiting for. But then as they watched him, they realized he wasn't setting up an earthly kingdom. It must have been confusing for them to look around hearing Jesus say he's the king, but then saying no earthly manifestation of it. He claimed to be Messiah. He claimed to be king, but then he didn't go about setting up his kingdom the way normal kings would do. And it was this, I think, that alienated the Jews because they longed for conquest. They longed for earthly glory. It was this that staggered Pilate. That's why Pilate is so confused, and that's why he's just kind of throwing up his hands like, what is truth even? You see, Christ's kingdom was not of this world in the form of an empire like Rome. His kingdom is not restricted to earth and time like the kingdoms of this world are restricted. Uh, Rome rose and it ended. Uh, nations and kingdoms before that rose and ended. We still see that even today, but Jesus' kingdom was not limited to time and earth like the kingdoms of this world are. I mean, Jesus even told the Pharisees this in Luke 17. He said, now when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, so they're wanting to know, right? They're interested in earthly power. They're interested in, in conquest and in glory. 
He answers them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. It's not like, poof, there it is. Okay, now we're, now we're starting the kingdom. Jesus goes on to say, nor will they say, see here, see there, look, there it is, there it is. I can see the kingdom. Jesus is saying that's, that's not how it's going to be. He says, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you. You see, the nature of Christ's kingdom is that the kingdom of truth is set up in the hearts of men, putting an end to the reign of evil, evoking humility, faith, love, hope, purity, and every spiritual grace. In short, the kingdom of God makes us new creations that look like our king. It makes us look like Jesus. You see, the truth of God is the preeminent characteristic of Christ's kingdom and his royal power over our hearts. And that's why Pilate was so confused, because he wasn't understanding this. Now, it's certainly a popular idea these days to find your own truth, isn't it? I mean, that's all the rage. Find your own truth. Whatever you believe in, if that works for you, that's good. And it's really nothing new. Even Pilate was like, okay, Jesus, you're saying your kingdom's all about truth. What is truth even? And so truth has always kind of been this somewhat subjective thing according to the way the world operates. And it's nothing new. And I guess in there are certain arenas of life that that's okay. Like there are certain arenas of life where it's okay to what you think is truth is fine. There, I'll give you an example. That's okay if we're talking about what you like on your pizza, right? There's the truth is some people love pineapple on their pizza. And I think you are a weird and confused individual if that is you, but that's okay. The truth is a lot of people like certain things and other people don't. The truth is a lot of people think I'm weird because I thought the movie The Greatest Showman was incredibly overrated. Uh, in the first service, somebody actually booed me about that. So, you know, sometimes there are some things where it's okay. And even in more serious matters, matters that have more weight than just what, what we watch on TV and, and what, what we like to eat, there are some things, even in Scripture, that people who love Jesus, who love God, who walk incredibly close with Him will say, I think this about this thing. And other people say, well, I might disagree, and I think that about this thing. So there are some arenas where it's okay to disagree, to agree to disagree. But the truth is, what we're talking about this morning, the truth of the kingdom, the truth of Jesus Christ, is not an area we could just be like, well, if that works for you, that's fine. If that works for me, it's fine. The truth of God's kingdom rises above that. In fact, throughout the scripture, Jesus, he kind of claimed exclusivity. There's a lot of people who are like, well, yeah, I think I'm saved, but I think if somebody else believes another God, that's fine. It doesn't work that way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so what Jesus is saying here is the truth. Pilate asks, what is truth? Jesus is saying, the truth is that I am the king. I am the only way. This is the truth of the kingdom. And to disbelieve it, to disagree with it, to cast it aside has eternal consequences, eternal damnation, the Bible tells us. But to put your hope in it and to believe it is life and life abundant. One theologian I read this week, he said this, he said, there are a thousand things you may not know and you would be the little worse for not knowing them. But if you do not believe this truth, the truth that Jesus is king, the truth that Jesus is the only way to the Father, the truth of who he is, that he is God. He says, if you do not believe this truth, it will not go well with you. If you know the Lord is your king, though, if you do believe this truth, he says, you will have rest for your cares, a balm for your sorrows, and satisfaction for your desires. You see this truth, Jesus is king. It transcends things we can agree to disagree on. It transcends even our own circumstances. It transcends our feelings. It transcends our emotions. And it's because of this truth we can know that what seems like the end may very well just be the beginning. Because Jesus is king, the end is not really the end. The truth that Jesus is king must be the most profound truth that we hold to in our lives. We need to hold on to that truth more than we hold on to anything. 
that needs to be the pillar and ground that we stand on. It is everything. The truth that Jesus is king must be the most profound truth. And when we believe that, it gives us this eternal mindset to realize, hey, what seems like the end may very well just be the beginning. But the followers of Jesus, they were still struggling with this. They could only see the physical that was right in front of their eyes because they were struggling with this truth. Which leads us to our next thought this morning. We saw the nature of Christ's kingdom. Now let's look at the seeming finality of Christ's death. Throughout John chapter 19, this, it's, it's a lengthier chapter, but it outlines the crucifixion of Jesus for us. I'm not going to take the, tire, uh, the time to read the entire chapter to you this morning, but I'll encourage you, maybe even this afternoon, go home and read it. Read about how Christ died for you, how Christ died for me. Flip a few pages back and go to the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus is in so much agony as he's looking towards the cross. He's in so much agony because he knows he's about to be separated from God the Father. He's in so much agony because he knows he's about to be punished for our sins. But the Bible says he sweat as it were great drops of blood. What happened was he was in so much physical agony that the blood capillaries in his face literally burst. And he began to literally sweat blood. Read about how Pilate, he gets so frustrated and he gets so just bent out of shape about this whole thing. It makes no sense to him that he has his Roman soldiers begin to scourge Jesus. They would take a cat of nine tails. It was a short whip that had nine, uh, nine, nine whips as one piece. And at the end of each one of these uh, whips, it would have pieces of bone or glass or broken shard. And as they whipped him, it would literally rip the body of Jesus apart. One prophecy said that his body was so marred you couldn't even recognize him as a man. Read about how he endured that for you and for me. Think about the crown of thorns that they put on his head, big thorns, as they beat him into his head and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Think about the mocking he had to endure. The creator of the universe, the one who held their very life in the palm of his hands, mocking him, shaming him, punching him, spitting on him, reviling him. Think about the betrayal. Friends who just hours before said, Jesus, we are with you to the end. Jesus, we are with you. Jesus, I'll die for you. Those same people have now run and betrayed him and are nowhere to be found. Ponder how he hung on that cross for you and for me. You see here as Jesus is hanging in the sheer agony on one of the cruelest instruments of torture ever devised. Nails have been driven through his wrists. There's a sign above Jesus that declares in Greek, Latin, and Aramaic, the king of the Jews. Our king is flanked on either side by thieves. All around him are gawkers and mockers. Some are yelling, let him save himself if he's a Christ. One of the thieves even joins in on this. Yeah, save yourself if you're really who you say you are. Save yourself. But they don't understand that if Jesus saves himself, their only hope for salvation is lost. In terrifying isolation, cut off from his father, cut him off from all of the humanity that he created, he screams, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. It's Aramaic, for my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, the Trinity broke. You see, nowhere do we see greater love, John 15, 13. Nowhere do we see greater humility, Philippians 2, 8. Nowhere do we see greater obedience, Hebrews 5, 8. Never been greater uh, humility, obedience, and love anywhere or ever displayed. In love, Jesus drained the cup of the Father's wrath on himself. Drained it to the last drop. He bore our full curse, the curse that you and I deserved. 
the punishment our sin deserved. Jesus says, God, pour all your wrath on me. There's no debt that's left to be paid. Jesus has nothing left to give. And in his final breath, he cries, it is finished. And God the Son dies. See, on the cross, we see the worst and the best of all human deaths. It's the worst because of the sheer agony and the sheer brutality and the sheer torture of it all. But it is the best because through it, our salvation was won. The darkness of the cross, one author said, was a horror that Jesus had never known. The blessed became the curse. The righteous became sin. And the Father's wrath was hitting him full forth, full force. I mean, you read the Old Testament. You see, we, get, we get a picture of God's wrath. Here on the cross, all of God's wrath is hitting Jesus full force for you and for me. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And to everyone there that day, this was it. This was the end. The reason we know Jesus' his followers thought the end is because in, uh, in uh, John 20, verse 9, the Bible says they didn't know the scriptures that Jesus must rise again. They didn't understand the prophecies. They didn't understand that Jesus had to go through this. And they didn't understand that this really wasn't the end, that Jesus was going to raise from the dead. When they saw Jesus hanging on the cross, they thought it was over. I thought, it's done. It's finished. Everything we've worked for is over. But it wasn't. Jesus was actually in that moment going to battle for you and he was going to battle for me. When he was hanging on the cross, he was taking our punishment. He was taking our guilt. He was taking our condemnation. That's why Jesus willingly went to the cross. That's why he told Pilate, look, Pilate, this is why I was born. This was my mission. This is the entire reason I'm here. He says I came in a wooden cradle so I could go to a wooden cross. This was the plan of heaven before the foundations of the world. This was the plan all along. This wasn't the end. And while everyone there, followers and enemies of Jesus alike, thought this is it, this is the end, it was really just the beginning. Because the cross is not how the story of Christmas ends. Matthew 28, 1 through 6, at the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they ran to see the sepulcher. They were going to the tomb of Jesus. They were going to where he was buried. They wanted to go and mourn. They wanted to give him a proper burial. They wanted to do things for his body because they thought, this is it. This is all over. And as they go there to mourn, the Bible says, behold, there was a great earthquake for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven. And he came and he rolled back the stone from the door of the tomb and he sat on it. And his countenance was like lightning. His raiment was as white as snow. And for fear of him, the keepers did shake, and they became his dead man. These two brutal Roman soldiers, they're standing there guarding the tomb of Jesus, and they pass out like they're dead at the sight of this angel. And then the angel answered and said unto the women, Fear not ye, for I know that ye seek Jesus, which was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said, come and see the place where his body lay. The angel's like, look, the tomb is empty, folks. Jesus isn't here. He has risen. The cross is not the end of the story. Three days later, after Jesus was brutally killed, he rose from the grave, and we see the awesome power of his resurrection. The awesome power of Christ's resurrection. The cross wasn't the end. It was simply 
the beginning. It was the beginning of life made available to all who believe in his name. I love John 20, verse 31. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And believing, you might have life through his name. It was the defeat of sin. It was the defeat of death. But the cross and the resurrection was just the beginning. So now we can have life. We're given this story so that we might believe. The Christmas story, we have it so that we can believe and have life, that we might be stunned and awakened to wonder. This story should fill our hearts with so much wonder and so much excitement and just this overwhelming sense of awe at who Jesus is. He conquered sin. He conquered death itself. This story should break away all the cynicism that creeps into our heart, all of our questions, all of our concerns, all the anger, all the bitterness. The cross of Jesus and the resurrection power breaks all that away. It breaks away the cynicism that creeps into our life. This story gives us hope when we have no hope. This story gives us life when we feel like we have none. And when life does its worst to us, and life does its worst, does it not? We have so many people in our church who are walking through so many difficulties right now. This morning, we have members in the hospital. This past two weeks, we've had as many funerals. We have another one coming up this week. People are walking through so many hardships, but when life does it worse, we can experience this sense of awe and wonder for all God has done for us. This is the amazing gift that he has given us. The resurrection gives us life. It gives us power. It gives us victory over sin. It it literally saves our soul. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that our entire faith hinges on this one event. 1 Corinthians 15, 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. But as Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 15, your faith is not worthless. Christ did raise from the grave and we are no more in our sins. You see, the eradication of death in Christ's resurrection is nothing less than the removal of the verdict of condemnation. You're not guilty anymore. You're free. You're in Christ and he has given us life. Your salvation has been won and it is now eternally secured. I love the prophecy that we saw a few weeks ago. The end of it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts, the zeal of the Lord of armies is going to perform this. And this is how he performed it. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus. You see, as one pastor said, unlike Christmas decorations that return to the attic every year, the new life and inheritance we've been given in Jesus Christ stays with us forever. You are eternally secure. Your salvation has been won. And what seemed like the end was really just the beginning. So church, what about you? What in your life feels like it's at its end? What in your life seems like it's over? Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like your marriage is over. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like your career is shot. Maybe you're here this morning and you've been working so hard at restoration but you just feel like there's no hope. What in your life feels like it's at its end? Remember, what feels like it's it's at its end? may very well just be the beginning. And because of the truth of God's kingdom, because Jesus is our king, we can have hope. We can experience abundant life. We can believe that this is not the end. Even when life threatens to end us and things in our life get ruined because of who Jesus is, because he is king, and he conquered death in the grave and rose again, we aren't ruined. Even when life tries to ruin us, we are not ruined because we have Jesus. The greatest comfort we can have is knowing that we belong to Jesus and that Jesus is king. In 1942, uh, a man by the name of Viktor Frankl, along with countless others, 
was ripped apart from everything that he loved, ripped apart from his life, and he was thrown into a Nazi death camp. Uh, between the years 1942 and 1945, he was in four different camps, including Auschwitz, the most infamous and brutal of them all. And while he was being rotated between camps, his parents, his brother, and his pregnant wife all died at the hands of the Nazi brutality. For Victor and everyone else who was thrown into these unspeakable horrors, it seemed like the end, and for many, if not most, it was. But he survived and would later become a world-renowned author. Victor Frankl would go on to earn an MD and a PhD from the University of Vienna. He published more than 30 books and served as a visiting professor at many Ivy League schools. How did this man, who lost everything, lost everything in ways we can't even imagine, in ways we can't even fathom, how did this man, who lost everything, survive and then actually seem to thrive after World War II? When his best-selling book, A Man's Search for Meaning, Viktor Frankl said this. He said, a man who has nothing left in this world, a man who seems like he's lost everything, a man who feels like he's at his end, a man who lost everything in this world, still may know bliss in the contemplation of love. Jesus said in John 15, 13, greater love has no man than this, than a man who lays down his life for his friends. You see, Christians, we have been given the greatest gift of love in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. If there was a way God could have loved us more, he would have done it. Jesus himself said, there's no greater demonstration of love than this. This demonstration of love, that Jesus would endure such a brutal death, that he would endure separation from God, that he would allow himself to be punished for our sins, and then three days later, rise from the dead. There's no greater love than that. And church, no matter what darkness we walk through, no matter what in your life comes crashing down, because we have been given the love of the Father demonstrated on the cross, we can know true eternal bliss. We can experience, as John 20 says, eternal life and abundant life here on this earth. Don't allow the difficulties of your life to cause you to forget that you are loved beyond imagination. So this Christmas, while you're buying gifts for family, while you're buying gifts for friends, while we're going through all the ceremony, and we're going through all the celebrations and the parties, and we get so busy. This Christmas time, take time to pause and wonder at the gift you have been given at the cross. That's our takeaway for this morning. Very simple. Wonder at the gift of the cross. God, Jesus, gave everything for us. We have been loved beyond imagine. And as you wonder at the gift of the cross, remember what seems like it's the end. May very well just be the beginning. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.